As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Red Line, where we interview three geopolitical experts on one big subject shaping the news both here and overseas. And I'm your host, Michael Hilliard. I remember my first time stepping off the train in Tashkent, the capital of Uzbekistan. I had just spent the night cramped in a carriage with broken heat, coming down from Shimkent in the Kazakhstan steppe. That first step off the train early in the morning, into the city that is really like nothing else will stick with me forever. The ancient Blue Dome buildings stood right next to the Soviet apartment blocks, a stark symbol of the country's two major identities. On one hand, an ancient centerpiece of the Silk Road to Asia, and on the other, a command hub for the Soviet domination of the region. Uzbekistan is nothing like any of its Central Asian neighbours. For one, it is the only Central Asian nation to border all of the other countries. It was the Soviets' path into Afghanistan, it was the Mongols' path into the Middle East, and it was the ancient Chinese path into Europe. Uzbekistan was always at the centre. Uzbekistan for a long time was one of the most closed-off countries in the world, with a 27-year dictator, no semblance of free press, and home to the Soviets' biological warfare program. And while so much has changed in Uzbekistan, the scars of the old ways are still there. What is now Uzbekistan was usually known as the halfway point of the Silk Road journey, where travellers would decide to either look east toward China or west towards Europe and Russia. And although many adventurers made that decision in ancient cities like Samarkand and Bukhara, Uzbekistan itself is making that decision right now, to look towards Europe and Russia to look towards China. And to talk more about that, we turn to our first guest. Part 1. Nowhere to go. The end of the Soviet Union and the transition into independence was traumatic for Uzbekistan, just as it was, I would say, for every country in the Soviet Union. Union that suddenly found itself, um, you know, independent and, and falling out of the Soviet Union as it collapsed, um, or, or with it falling out, um, collapsing around its ears, you might say. Um, Uzbekistan didn't have any kind of bloody transition, um, particularly. Um, not like neighbouring Tajikistan, where civil war broke out. Um, but that that in itself was um, traumatic for Uzbekistan because they are they are neighbours, of course. And Uzbekistan, you know, was accused of dabbling in that war at times. Um, there was also in the latter part of the Soviet Union there was um, you know ethnic clashes which which um, involved some some you know Uzbeks in the Fergana Valley on the Kyrgyz side. Um, there were clashes in which uh, Uzbeks died. They were not in Uzbekistan, but this was in the latter part of the Soviet Union. And so it did certainly demonstrate the potential for how badly things can go wrong and did go wrong in some parts of the Soviet Union and in some parts of Central Asia. Um, I think um, Uzbekistan, you know, 
like all the countries in Central Asia and in the Soviet Union, um, you know, had to deal with the hand it was dealt and it, it, independence was not a choice. It was thrust upon it. And it's, you know, it, it, it's well known, certainly, you know, um, among commentators in, in this part of the world in Central Asia that, you know, the Central Asian countries were kind of uh, were, were pretty slow in, in getting onto the independence bandwagon and it looked like they didn't, they weren't really that keen, basically, you know, they, they didn't look very keen on, on the idea. They were used to being ruled um, from Moscow. Joanna Lewis is an Almaty-based journalist covering Central Asia for The Economist, The Guardian and Eurasianet. She's also the author of the book Dark Shadows, Inside the Secret World of Kazakhstan. She's one of the best journalists around when it comes to Central Asia, and we are thrilled to have her on the show. Um, Uzbekistan's economy is actually quite diverse. I mean, it, it's known as a kind of gas-rich country, a gold-rich country. It, it's been uh, over the years of independence, it exported quite a lot of gas, quite a lot of gold. Um, and of course, cotton, we'll, we'll probably get onto that as something controversial involving, um, you know, slave labor, child labor over the years in Uzbekistan. But it's, so it's, um, um, it, it, it does have a certain dependence on commodities, uh, raw, raw commodities. Um, but it's actually quite a diverse economy, um, and this has actually protected it, um, protected it um, um, uh, during the pandemic. I mean, Uzbekistan is one of the few countries in the world to have actually managed to post some economic growth last year in 2020, um, despite all the impact of lockdown, the impact on the global economy and on its neighbours and on on um, the falling of um uh, remittances from Russia, all of this impacting spending among you know people at home, but still it managed to to post a very small um, amount of growth, um, unlike most countries in the world, and, and unlike say Kazakhstan. Remittances coming back from Russia make up a huge part of the Kyrgyz and Tajik economies. Is it that same reliance on workers going to Russia and sending money home in Uzbekistan? Uzbekistan is nowhere near as reliant on remittances as um, its neighbours, Tajikistan and, and Kyrgyzstan. Um, and, um, you know, I mean, this is a part, this is a big part of the, um, of the economy or certainly of what drives spending at home. Um, for example, um, last year, 2020, more than something like $4.4 billion was sent from Russia to Uzbekistan. The bulk of that would be labor remittances. Um, now, that's a lot of, a lot of money, um, and that drives um, spending at home, and it keeps people out of poverty, keeps families out of poverty. It's a main source of income for many families. But it, it's nowhere near the sort of levels that, um, that, uh, of dependence that we see in Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan, which are among the most remittance-dependent countries in the world because they just don't have... And that diversity of the economy that Uzbekistan has. Islam Karimov, who served as leader of Uzbekistan from 1989 to his death in 2016, had been in feuds or short wars with every other Central Asian nation. Why were relations so bad in this period between Tashkent, the capital of Uzbekistan, and its neighbours in places like Bishkek, the capital of Kyrgyzstan? Um, so Islam Karimov, uh, the president, the first president of Uzbekistan, who died in 2016 after um, 25 years in power, um, you, you know, he really he really shaped modern Uzbekistan, and I think a lot of people would agree that not in a good way. Um, you know, I mean, he was renowned as one of the world's worst dictators. Um, 
uh, Uzbekistan under him was one of the world's most authoritarian dictatorial countries with um, human rights flouted even by the terms of um, even by comparison, say, with uh, the neighbors in Central Asia, which are all human rights flouters and authoritarian countries. Uh, but Uzbekistan um, was really um, always came, you know, in the bottom of um, the world's um, like press freedom rankings and so on. And um, I lived in Uzbekistan for um, four, more than four years in the early 2000s. And it, it really was um, a different um, level of um, authoritarianism compared to even say Kazakhstan which is a very authoritarian country um, you know it really was a police state and um, and that that was most obvious in in terms of how many police you would always see on the streets in Tashkent every really every few steps sometimes um, you know there were um, ten thousands um, up to ten thousand political prisoners in, in jail at any one time um, and and you know people were very afraid to express their opinions on a on a personal level. Of course, not in print um, and online, um, but but even even speaking to strangers in a way that they are not in in say Kazakhstan. Um, so uh, Uzbek, so Karimov, that that's one of his legacies, which um, which uh, has changed over the last five years since his death. Um, he also. Um, uh, was a spoiler in terms of any any kind of relations with the other Central Asian states, and certainly in terms of any attempts to forge any kind of Central Asian reintegration re in the post-Soviet years. And Karimov was always a spoiler. He was prickly, isolationist. He didn't get on with any of his um, neighbours. And all this caused immense problems for the, for all the peoples in in these countries, and um, you know the, it was really difficult to trade and to, to cross borders. Borders were closed, air links were closed between um, Tashkent and Dushanbe, the Tajik capital, for about twenty five years. So all in all, um, his legacy on Uzbekistan, he 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 really made a huge impact in, on Uzbekistan, and life was very difficult for people under him. Much like his counterpart in Tajikistan. Karimov was known for being quite corrupt, having an official salary of 16,000 US dollars a year, but living in multi-multi-million dollar palaces. Is it fair to say Karimov was tied to a fair bit of corruption during his presidency? Well, I mean, I think when it comes to corruption in Uzbekistan under Karimov, massive corruption thrived in Uzbekistan, massive, enormous corruption. And it went to a very small, the, the proceeds of that corruption went to a very small coterie of people. Um, as for Karimov personally, when it comes to the Karimov family, you know, I mean, I think there is one name that spring, springs to mind, um, the proceeds of corruption. When we're talking about the proceeds of corruption, that's Gulnara Karimov, his daughter, um, who, um, you know, who who is now in jail in Uzbekistan. But uh, under his rule, um, in fact, she was actually placed in, in, in detention in obscure circumstances before he died. But under his rule, um, you know, she um, really came to, to, to be the gatekeeper of the economy and especially of certain sectors like the telecom sector, which later proved to be her downfall um, because, you know, investigations started into 
um, the, the proceeds um, or what kind of what kind of payments companies were making, including foreign companies, um, to get access to the Uzbek market. It's very lucrative market. I mean, Uzbekistan is the most populous country in Central Asia. Mobile phone use is, is, is very widespread. I mean, um, it's a very lucrative market. And, you know, basically, um, in uh, over the over the years, um, you know, it emerged that um, really that these companies had been had been, um, you know, paying bribes, basically, that ultimately benefited Gulnara Karimova, um, who is the target of multiple investigations in, in Western countries. And as I say, is now in jail in Uzbekistan um, on corruption charges. But, um, but, you know, there's been a lot of a complete lack of transparency surrounding her trial. One trial, in fact, took place in a kitchen um, of a place where she was being held under house arrest, which is the most dubious uh, from the judicial point of view. Um, and, you know, I think um, we've got a reforming Uzbekistan now, according to President Shavkat Mizioyev, is reforming, changing the way it was compared to Karimov. But, you know, that's a, a specific example of, of um, you know, a very, very um, secretive um, judicial proceedings. And, and whatever the crimes of Gulnawa Karimova, um, you know, they... they, they there is a lack of transparency over what they were and what happened to her and um, um, and how how it happened, the judicial proceedings, um, which is not the, the mark of a, of a properly reforming state, I think. And I think there's also an incentive to blame all the corruption that happened under Karimova on Gulnara Karimova, um, whereas, in fact, there are people who are obviously complicit in it all the time who are still very high up in government. And so there's a very, very much a lack of incentive to be too transparent about this. During the Soviet era, many of these Central Asian republics used to work together on a number of issues. As an example, in the winter months, Uzbekistan would send additional gas to Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan, and in the summer months, Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan would send additional water to Uzbekistan. Has this sort of cooperation made a comeback in the post-Soviet years? This intertwining, interconnectedness of the Central Asian um, countries um, and and other countries in the former Soviet Union. Of course, it was a it was a, a feature of the Soviet Union because borders then were just administrative borders within the Soviet Union. And of course, um, I, as you say, there was, for example, the need to share power, water. Um, the need to generate power and share it with other countries and not to leave the other countries um, uh, you know dry without uh, water for irrigation and um, and 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 so on um now uh, after the Soviet Union collapsed um, there was a certain breakdown in in much of that cooperation among some of the countries and uh, we, we talked before about how Uzbekistan was very uncooperative with its neighbors and that had a huge impact on all all of the, all of this um, you know trying to be isolationist but you can't you can't be isolationist so much when it comes to say rivers how they flow and so on but Uzbekistan would always try to for example act as spoiler for, for its neighbors trying to um, build hydropower projects and so on. Since Mezioyev came to power in 2016, he, he really threw open the doors. Um, this is one of his, his major achievements, actually. He's, he is known as a political reformer to a degree and for releasing political prisoners. But one of his major achievements um, 
has been to really establish a new era of cooperation with the Central Asian um, neighbours. And because Uzbekistan is the largest um, Central Asian country in terms of population, and because it borders all the other ones, it really was kind of holding everything up. And, and um, you know, Central Asian neighbours have really welcomed this. Um, and, and so now you see cooperation on uh, cooperation between Uzbekistan and its neighbours on hydropower, uh, for example. Instead of acting as a spoiler, they're saying, well, how can we use this to our mutual advantage? Um, so these days, I guess we're, we're moving back towards a, a time when, um, you know, you see more cooperation, more open borders, loads of border posts that were closed, just completely slammed shut, have been opened. Karimov was very supportive of the US war in Afghanistan and the subsequent war on terror. Why would a Central Asian dictator like Karimov be so supportive of the US operations in the region? Well, I mean, when it when it comes to the war on terror, yes, Karimov was very supportive of the United States. Um, um, I mean, you have to remember that after 9-11, you know, uh, Uzbekistan was suddenly, and Central Asia generally, but especially Uzbekistan, was suddenly propelled onto the world's map, onto the world's TV screens. Um, I was in Uzbekistan actually on 9 11, um, and, um, you know, shortly afterwards came the invasion of neighboring Afghanistan, Afghanistan as in a neighbor of Uzbekistan. And, um, you know, the, uh, the Americans then opened um, air, an airbase in Uzbekistan. Uh, obviously, with Karimov's support, that wasn't going to happen without Karimov's support, um, because it's you know it's got this border with um, with it's a, it's very close to Afghanistan and it borders Afghanistan. Um, so why would he? Why would Karimov do that? Well, first of all, um, the only. The only the, the main actor that wouldn't have wanted uh, or would have been resistant to um, to America opening air bases in in Central Asia w would be Russia, although Russia was 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 not that resistant at that time, um, and <clears throat> Karimov uh, was not a pro-Russian. Um, he always said he, you know he wanted to kind of um, emphasize Uzbekistan's sovereignty to make its own decisions. For Karimov, um, who was vilified as a dictator, it was advantageous to establish cooperation that he thought would probably uh, mitigate um, um, criticism over human rights, although it was um, criticism over human rights that led to the relationship falling apart in 2005. Um, when um, the airbase was shut down after the Americans became very critical of Uzbekistan after uh, basically the government massacred peaceful um, civilians in, in uh, during a protest in eastern Uzbekistan in Andijan. Um, but for Karimov, it was advantageous. I mean, he, he first of all, he was also very much... Um, he, he, he wanted Islam to exist in Uzbekistan on his terms only. So the idea of a, of a war on terror, which involved um, fighting Islamic extremism, which he was always um, very um, keen to address, um, and he addressed it in a way that infringed human rights of, 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 of peaceful, pious Muslims. But, but for him, the war on terror was something that felt in line with, uh, with his goals. So uh, at that time, in 2001, he, ha he had no reason not to support as I say, the relationship later fell apart very acrimoniously. What do you think is a better description of the geopolitical situation in Uzbekistan? Are they trapped by all of their neighbours, or are they the centre square projecting influence outwards into the region? Now, that's a good question. I don't think Uzbekistan is trapped by its position. Um, I think... Um, I think that since Mizuryev um, came to power, I mean, ge geographical position, I think 
<clears throat> Ms. Yoev has decided to leverage that position as an advantage and um, having greater cooperation with neighbors, he's doing that and it, it does become an advantage. I mean, um, I think um, Uzbekistan can and does take a leaf out of Kazakhstan's book on that because Kazakhstan always always tries to present its landlocked kind of, you know, position in the Eurasian landmass as a, as a strength rather than a weakness. Yes, um, as a as a kind of we can be your you know a, a link between China and um, the West, China and Russia, China and Turkey, um, geographically speaking. And Uzbekistan, yeah, I think it's now leveraging its position as a uh, as an advantage for Uzbekistan, and so it's not trapped at all. It's um, you know it's a powerful um, economy in Central Asia. It's, it's the most populous nation. It's got um, a young and educated and dynamic populace. Um, um, and it's it's going. It, it can go good places. But the one thing I would add um, is that Uzbekistan has been reforming really dynamically, um, especially at the beginning of um, uh, Shavkat Mirziyoyev's presidency. After Karimov died in in 2016, this was a moment of um, of great concern. First of all, uh, what would happen? And I think everybody expected Mirziyoyev to just keep on with the, the the old dictatorial policy, and he proved to be a reformer. And that's um, been uh, very exciting, but certainly for me as um, someone who lived in Uzbekistan for some years and then regularly travels there um, to observe. But also, it's been exciting and an opportunity for the people of Uzbekistan. There have been huge economic reforms that have opened things up for people, created jobs and opportunities, and political reforms, freeing the political prisoners, loosening of screws on the media. But um, we must remember, and this is a good time to mention, in October, Mirziyoyev will be up for re-election. And what do we see? We see kind of breaks, especially on political reform, um, on human rights. Um, we don't. There's still no opposition parties in Uzbekistan. Uzbe uh, Mirziyoyev may well go to the polls facing no opposition. I mean, to me, that would be a shame uh, five years into this reform process. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. In the Khrushchev era of the Soviet Union, the Soviets' relationship with Egypt began to break down. And when Cairo left, so did the Soviets' main source of cotton. So the decision was made by Soviet leadership that Uzbekistan would be the cotton bed for the rest of the Soviet Union. The only small problem being that cotton is a very water-intense crop, and most of Uzbekistan is a desert. So with classic Soviet problem-solving, the water that once fed the mighty Aral Sea in the west of the country was diverted to feed the artificial cotton fields in the east. And whilst the cotton bloomed, 
the Aral Sea began to die, the repercussions of which we're still dealing with today. Cotton growing in the Uzbek valleys where it never had before came as a victory to the leadership in Tashkent. But to the people working in the cotton fields, the view was very different. And to talk more about that, we turn to our second guest. Part 2. The Weight of Tradition Uzbekistan is very uh, stable, conservative, but uh, there is a lot of beautiness in this uh, attitude. Uh, while Tajikistan is full of expression, mountainous, uh, Uzbekistan is more quiet and we are more flat. So it is a stable, flat, predictable country. Let's say predictable. Nikita Makarenko is a journalist and defense writer based in Uzbekistan. He's been reporting on the region for years now and is one of the best on-the-ground sources you could ever ask for. He joins us today. Mirzi Yoev, he started it right from the beginning of his presidential term to warm up our relations with neighboring countries. I think it's smart because there is no profit for anyone to be uh, in a rival. And I just took it with a huge optimism because I have a lot of friends in Tajikistan. And previously, I had to buy visa for $150 just to visit Tajikistan. And then back in Tashkent, the national security was blaming me um, that I'm a Tajik spy just because I wanted to visit uh, my Tajik friends. It was super awful. And I was one of the first journalists, actually maybe the first, who crossed the border between countries right in the day when visa-free regime with Tajikistan was announced. So I was super uh, optimistic with it. So we are good with Tajikistan. With Kyrgyzstan, we have a huge progress. If you heard uh, about borders, delimitation of borders, we are nice friends with Kazakhstan. And I believe we have nothing against Turkmenistan, just right now, I'm two blocks away from uh, Mahtum Kuli Street, which has been renamed um, to the name of a great Turkmen poet recently to honor our Turkmen friends. And it is one of the central streets in Tashkent. It wasn't like this before. But Turkmenistan itself is a complicated country, so we can't really say about warming up. It's more about Turkmenistan. I'm not sure they want to warm relationships with anyone. It's pretty good. In neighboring states like Tajikistan or Kyrgyzstan, there is a huge dependence in their economies for Russian remittances coming back. That is, local work is going off to Russia and then sending part of their paycheck back home. Is the same dependence prevalent in the Uzbek economy as well? So at first, uh, let's be clear, I'm completely not a fan of Mr. Putin, like 100%, and I don't like what they do in their internal and external policy. But I'm a realist, and I could state that we depend on Russia a lot. So many uh, political scientists, they like to write uh, their articles about competition between United States, China, and Russia. Just recently, I read such an article in Forbes, well, for me, as an insider, I take it kind of kind of with a lot of skepticism. There is really no struggle between the United States, China, and Russia. Russia dominates. They dominate. And it's mostly because we depend on 
few million work migrants who work in uh, Russia and just imagine every year they send us we have money transfers like free for free it is three billion dollars yeah three billion dollars they say back to home as money transfer and all the profit from cotton production we are proud about cotton it's just around 900 million dollars so work migrant force is three times more profitable for the country uh, comparing to cotton the former uzbek president karimov was one of the harshest dictators in the region and this is a region known for harsh dictators as someone who grew up in uzbekistan what was life like living under karimov as for professional uh my work in times of karimov till 2016 till the mirziyoyev time was an absolute disaster it was super dangerous i never ever published anything under my real name uh i was working on the radio but it was just a cover because i had a morning show but i it wasn't possible to speak anything uncensored in the radio and i also was writing for a different western media for uh, blogs but never used my real name so you could imagine like for uh more than 10 years i had no opportunity to write under my real name so literally nobody knew who i am so it was hard uh in terms of life well uh it was stable everything was super predictable like today but even more predictable so you definitely knew what will happen tomorrow no political life no any conflicts honestly say it was safe uh the uzbekistan was proud to be one of the safest countries in the world and it was true uzbekistan was safe but sterile safe you know like in a hospital it was sterile under president karimov he pretty famously proclaimed there was no poverty in uzbekistan is there any semblance of truth to that oh for sure it was propaganda so if we're talking about early karimov it was just an insane poverty because when i was a teenager i remember how poor we are, we've been but my family is an intelligent family my mother was a, a programmer one of the first female programmers actually so she's a super smart but in 90s of i don't know she's been working as an accountant but she really tried to bring our family she really tried uh and yes it was poor and all the environment around was poor then uh for sure there been some progress uh, zero has been better than 90s 90s was just a disaster but it was poor with the long-time president karimov dead and the new president mirziyoyev at the helm how would you describe the change between these two leaders oh honestly not a lot and we definitely wanted more uh well in karimov time there was no political life at all uh and his common system wasn't a super efficient too because why country was poor and what was the main reason of poverty is definitely corruption uzbekistan in times of karimov was super corrupted i can't explain how hugely it was corrupted but i don't know it like everyone was infected everyone and for sure uh everything changed on 180 degrees after mirziyoyev came to power we have freedom of speech i mean relative freedom of speech relative freedom of expression 
freedom of movement. There is no exit visas anymore. So many things changed. But in terms of corruption, despite all the efforts, it's mostly still the same. One industry that spans not only the last two leaders, but also way back into the Soviet era, is the famous Uzbek cotton industry. Can you take us through why Uzbekistan is so invested in cotton, as well as the controversial Uzbek law that drafts large amounts of Uzbek citizens to leave their homes and workplaces for part of the year to work without pay on the national cotton plantations? I see that we have a progress in uh, um, terms of getting rid of forced labor. We really have a progress. It's true. Um, and I see efforts from the government uh, to switch from cotton to other crops. Uh, as a consultant for one uh, international organization, I've been uh, visiting farmers in different regions recently. I've been talking with them and uh, there are two huge problems. I mean, to reform the country and to get rid of cotton. And we need to get rid of cotton, mainly not because of the forced labor, but because it requires a lot of water. And climate change gives us no chance to continue with uh, cultivation of the cotton. So two major problems. First one is that still there is no private land in Uzbekistan. All agricultural land belongs to the government. So farmers, they literally rent the land from the government. And because they rent this land, uh, government dictates what they should crop mostly. So if you do not obey, you do not have a land. Until there is no free market for agriculture, agriculture and uh, no private land, you just can't effectively reform it. Uh, the second problem is, and it was completely new for me, I just get it from farmers, I didn't know. I was like, okay, guys, if you get the total freedom, private land, and you could do any crop you want, which crop you would select? And all of them answer cotton. And I was like, why? And they say, we don't know how to vegetate anything else. We just know how to do cotton. Our father's been doing cotton. Our grandfather's been doing cotton. So it's just our stuff. And what about the national mandatory service in the cotton fields? They tried to send me in university like every student, but I've been protesting. Not a lot of uh, people in Uzbekistan protesting because it's just not in blood of my compatriots. But I've been protesting, so I never visited any field, but... It was a disaster. Every September and October, all the students from all universities been dropping their classes and they've been sent to cotton fields. All the soldiers, policemen, any governmental employers, all been forced to work for free on the cotton field. If you don't do, you exclude it from the university, you lose your job, so you just have to obey. There is no other choice, especially in this environment of uh, huge unemployment. And there, there was one option. If you don't want to go, you should hire someone instead of you. So literally, you should pay someone and this person will go to harvest cotton for you. And all the businessmen, like every September, doesn't matter what do you run, a little shop or an oil company, depends on the amount of your workers. You should send a percentage of your workers to the cotton field. And again, if you don't want to send anyone, you pay the money. So literally the system been working like this. 
And with the state owning the land, who reaps the profits from the cotton industry? So uh, previously in Karim of times, it was hugely corrupted because uh, definitely all the cotton belongs to the government. Uh, farmers being like low paid for this. Uh, you just have to sell your cotton to the government for fixed price. You can't bargain nothing. And then the government been exporting the cotton to the west or to the east through one company. And it's been the huge corrupted process because people have been making profit from this uh, cotton stream. Now it's different. Now everybody has a freedom to trade cotton on an international market as they want. So we have government who sell its cotton. We have private clusters who harvest their own cotton and who sell their cotton. So now it's a mixed system. Uzbekistan is desperately trying to diversify their economy at the moment and gain some economic momentum. How does the Uzbekistan economy compare to, let's say, some of its neighbors in countries like Kazakhstan or Turkmenistan? We have a huge interest among investors uh, to Uzbekistan, but uh, to <clears throat> run uh, faster than Kazakhstan and to be uh, on the first place, we still lack a great management. We still lack, we still have a lack of transparent policies. And what's more important, a really uh, free justice system. So still, uh, investors are skeptical in us because they see a lot of scandals with corrupted judges involved, with corrupted law enforcement involved. In these terms, we're still losing competition to Kazakhstan. If we would improve it, definitely we have a much higher potential just because, because we have more people, more workforce, more natural resources. We have a lot to offer. But our undeveloped management, our corruption just kills a hope to overrun Kazakhstan. And talking about uh, other neighboring stands, well, I don't see there is a chance because their economies are tight and small. When you travel to the far western reaches of Uzbekistan, you will find what's left of the Aral Sea. Villages that were once hubs for fishing are now hundreds of miles from the nearest body of water. Old tugboats litter the desert floor. An entire ecosystem has been virtually destroyed over the course of 60 years. The sea has shrunk by just under 80% of its original volume, uncovering huge swathes of barren land but rusty shipwrecks and fish bones aren't the only things the shrinking sea is exposing to the elements. In what used to be the middle of the Aral Sea, far from any locals, 2,500 kilometers from the nearest NATO capital, lied what was once known as Vozvorozvidenya Rostrov, in English, Rebirth Island, and its facility, Aralsk 7. This island is where the Russians created and tested some of their most terrifying weapons. Plagues, smallpox, anthrax, nerve gas, and many more. But in 1992, when the Russians left in a hurry, no proper cleanup of the island or the surrounds was ever done, and quite a bit was left to be picked through by scavengers. To add to the problem, what was once Vozvorozvidenya Rostrov became Vozvorozvidenya Palastrov, Rebirth Peninsula.
the shrinking sea has not only exposed a seabed full of anthrax and man-made plagues to the world, but has also created a land bridge for scavengers to what was once the world's biggest anthrax factory. And to talk a bit more about that, we turn to our third guest. Part 3. Death by the Sands Well, see, the Russian program was all about the secret cities, the hidden cities. You know, Kamchatsk 16 or uh, Nizhny Novgorod 12, all that stuff. And they kept it very secret, and they still do. And the fact that they truly did not care about the environment at all. Because in all of this Soviet environment, especially in Stalin's era and Khrushchev's era, Brezhnev kind of got a bit lenient on it. They decided that, you know, we will take control over the nature. And one of the biggest issues you can see, for example, is the Aral Sea and the fact that they wanted to grow cotton there, which kind of failed because there was a massive ball dust and they had basically a bioweapons laboratory in the center of it. Kristiaps Andresens is an investigative journalist and host of the show The Eastern Border. Kristiaps is based on the Latvian border with Russia and has been doing investigative journalism into the former Soviet states for a number of years now. We're glad to have him back on the show. The Soviets basically were kind of like ignorant about all this ecological situation or the locals because they knew that, you know, they'll have a cover-up from the Moscow, okay? So, you know, they knew they would the some of the cover cover it up. So they were way more lax with all the kind of standards for everything not to fall into the environment. Because, like I said, yeah, they basically knew that they, they have a cover-up from Moscow. And, you know, if they succeeded, then there would be no repercussions for whatever they did. You know, they could just slack off or something. As long as you can present a nice little report to Moscow, it'll work. And uh, really, who cares about the local people who live there? Some of the most classified Soviet areas were always way out in the desert. Semipalatinsk and Baikonur were way out from any major cities in Kazakhstan, for instance. So why did the Soviets put so much effort into putting their facilities way, way, way out from anything else? Oh, because that was the kind of the most remote areas and the driest ones of that. And the fact that they could experiment with things. You see, during the Soviet era, especially Khrushchev's era, they wanted to kind of present themselves as being victorious over the nature itself. But they wanted to do this because they th truly thought that their population density was low and they could bribe the local governors and this is a nice place to experiment. And the fact that no one will catch them for this, well, you could experiment there easily and just no one will notice. Far out in the Uzbek desert in the center of the Aral Sea was the centerpiece of the Soviet biological program, housed in Aralsk 7 on Vozrazdinyar Island. Can you take us through what the Soviets were making at that facility? At the time when the Soviets built the facility, they knew that the United States and everyone else was kind of moving away from it. However, in the Soviet era, they really were into biological weapons because biological weapons gap. And they thought that it would serve as a prestige. And like even today, uh, they, they still want to keep this up because... A lot of people who are ex-KGB in the Soviet government 
like in my Russian government as well, believe that the biological weapons are the way to go. And the fact that some people could get infected, that doesn't really bother them. So they wanted something real. So they built these, uh, built these biological and chemical weapons testing facilities so that they could present themselves as a legitimate threat to the world and that they could just use them as kind of kind of basically a threat to, oh, well, if you're not going to play nice with us, we're going to poison the world, that kind of thing. But the fact is that biological weapons and chemical weapons are much more easier to spread than, you know, nukes. With the collapse of the Soviet Union in the 90s, the Russians left the facility in a major hurry, only taking what they could and leaving behind an ecological disaster. As an example, many of the diseased animals were simply just turned loose. Vials of diseases were left behind, and pounds of anthrax were never collected. To this day, Russia refuses to pay to clean up the area, stating that it's not part of Russia anymore. The Uzbeks also refused to clean the area, saying that Russia was the one that caused the mess. And now these chemicals are being thrown around in the region's frequent dust storms, contaminating an area the size of metropolitan France. The cancer rate in some of these Kazakh cities to the north of the island is dramatically higher than anywhere else in the country. Can you take us through this biological time bomb and why the Russians wouldn't clean it up before they left? I've heard stories and people have reported to me that, you know, they're, they're pigs and goats and whatnot, like, cows that are livestock have been like dying off from whomever knows what, right? And they report this to local government because, you know, you have to quarantine that and they got no response for like six months. That's the scariest part. They have a lot of problems there. They have a lot of things to fix, but no one cares at all. I will give you now the most cynical thing ever. Because I know how it's like in both Russia and all these countries. No one cares. Because recently in Russia, the, the Russian military spilled about 200 tons of chemical weapons into the sea next to the Pacific Ocean in their Pacific borders, right? And no one cared. They spilled 20,000 tons of diesel fuel into their own rivers in Siberia, and nobody cared. When the Science Academy of Russia decided to publish a, a report on the situation of ecology in Russia, they were told to not to publish this because that would be an ecological bomb and political bomb before the elections. No one cares. People who live there... Yeah, they do protest a lot, but no one cares at all. And people like are just forced to suffer through this, and the wind blows everything up. And all the Soviet other things, yeah, Soviets did a lot of things, but they just screwed up the environment completely. With the shrinking shoreline, the island has become a peninsula, and there's been an uptick in scavengers looking for everything on the island from vials of diseases to the copper wiring left in the walls. I personally have first-hand experience with this kind of looting when I visited Pripyat just outside Chernobyl, where scavengers had taken all of the manhole covers to melt down and sell. But the ground at Vosrostinia is covered in anthrax, and much more dangerous than Chernobyl. Why are people still breaking in to steal the materials and leftovers if there's such a present danger there on the ground? They've been caught stealing copper wires from their own rockets. And they've been caught 
are like bit using their supercomputers to mine Bitcoin. Do you expect someone caring about an kind of an old weapons facility with, with biological weapons? No. In the middle of nowhere? No. This is a problem that will continue to radiate throughout the region. And we'll be talking about it a little more in our upcoming piece focused on chemical and biological warfare. But as much as Tashkent curses Russia for the damage it's caused in the West, it still has to praise Russia due to the country's economic dependence on Moscow. But that may all be starting to change as new players are entering the Central Asian theater. And to talk a bit more about that, we turn to our final guest. Part 4. Last Man Standing They should be the center of attention of Central Asia. I mean, it's the poor policies of, of First President Islam Karimov that, that really set, has held the country back um, hugely. I mean, there's there's so many good reasons why Uzbekistan should be like the hub of what's happening in Central Asia. You know, you, you mentioned that, that it's in the center, right? So it, it borders, it's the only country that borders all the other Central Asian countries and Afghanistan at the same time. Um, it's, it, population is coming up on 35 million. That's, uh, it, that's not only by far the biggest population in Central Asia, but it's, it's, probably like 40 or 45% of the total population of Central Asia. They had a lot of advantages at the, right when they hit independence um, that, that the other ones didn't have. Why? Because they were the gateway for the Soviet army to get in and out of Afghanistan on land, right? So, so Moscow actually invested a lot of money in the 1980s in Uzbekistan to, to upgrade its roads, build factories and plants, uh, which were necessary for helping support, you know, the uh, military cargo going into Afghanistan, troops going into Afghanistan, um, you know, whereas obviously uh, on the periphery, Turkmenistan, Kyrgyzstan, uh, Tajikistan, and really Kazakhstan for the most part didn't get that kind of money. So, um, you know, in, in late 1991, when everyone was trying to gr get a grip on independence, um, Uzbekistan did, looked like it should have been the leader all the way around. Uh, you know, like I said, they had, um, they just had more going for them at that particular moment than, than any other countries in Central Asia. Bruce Panillo is one of the foremost experts when it comes to Central Asia, having written for dozens of renowned publications, ranging from Radio Free Liberty to the Foreign Policy Research Institute to The Diplomat. Bruce is one of the most recognizable names when it comes to reporting on Central Asia, and we are thrilled to have him join us today. Karimov, over time, uh, he also he also thought Uzbekistan should be the power of Central Asia. He didn't want Russian influence in the in the region, or certainly as little as possible. Of course, in the '90s, China was not even a factor really at all. Um, you know, Karimov reached out to the United States. He was uh, tried to be the best friend of the United States, thinking that would be the balance he needed to keep Russia out of the region, and that Uzbekistan would, in the meantime, uh, be the regional power, um, without a doubt. Uh, but but he had bad re personal relationships with, with the other Central Asian leaders. Um, he, he did not use diplomatic language when he spoke. I mean, he said what was on his mind, and, and a lot of times that was the wrong thing to say. Um, so he, he made a lot of enemies uh, with, the, with the neighboring leaders uh, and other people, too, uh, at the time. So, um, you know, biggest military, biggest population, bordering all the other countries. Uh, 
you would figure that this would be, you know, and the obvious center of attention, uh, the hub, like I said, of Central Asia. International organizations believe that was also true. Um, if you look, you know, at who was in Uzbekistan in the late 1990s and right after the turn of the century, everyone was based there. The IMF, ADB had an office, you know, not based there, but I mean, everyone had a representative office in Uzbekistan. Uh, even if they had no representative offices in anywhere else in Central Asia, they had it. They had it in Uzbekistan. You know, so it really had a lot of advantages going for it. And like I said, it had it had more factories, uh, much better infrastructure than the other countries. Um, and, you know, it's a testament to Karimov's misrule uh, that they find themselves in the situation that they're in today. A lot of the tension between the Uzbeks and their neighbors stems from the Fagana Valley. As has become a bit of a recurring theme here on the show, Stalin drew the borders in the valley to crisscross each other with parts of Kyrgyzstan inside Uzbekistan, parts of Uzbekistan inside of Tajikistan, parts of Tajikistan inside of Kyrgyzstan, and so on. With the way the borders are drawn, for Uzbek citizens to travel from Tashkent, the capital of the country, to the population centers in the Fagana Valley, they need to either travel through the dangerous Kumara Mountains that separate them, or travel into Tajikistan to go around them. The Uzbek capital is somewhat cut off from their main population center, and that is never a good position for a country to be in. So if the Uzbeks do have the mightiest military in the region, and they are the dominant player in the regional politics, why haven't they ever made a big push to occupy the small parts of their neighbors and solidify the links between Tashkent and the Vagana Valley? What has prevented them doing that when they had very harsh dictators of their own? Well, you know, there's a lot of complicated things going on there. And no one, even in the early days, no one was ever sure how Russia would react to some of this stuff. Um, you know, if one of the countries had started a war with one of the, the other countries in Central Asia, what would Moscow's stance be on that? Would they would it be limited to verbal warnings and, and expressions of, of disapproval or, or would they actually I mean, you know, there was still uh, R- Russian border guards were in Turkmenistan until the mid 90s and, and in Kyrgyzstan until the end of the 90s and then the Tajik border until 2005. Um, so Russia always had a presence in the region. And, and of course, their army was uh, probably a little bit better trained, but certainly it was possible for them to be better equipped very quickly, whereas the Central Asians had what they had. Uh, and they weren't you know, in any, any position to upgrade their, their military uh, very quickly um, without re- you know, reaching out to other countries and trying to get it in. Um, so I, I don't think that was really much of an option. It, what Uzbekistan did do, um, and they got caught constantly was their border guards would would simply cross over into the into another country's section and start putting up a fence like that was the bo- that was the border. I mean, they got caught, I think, 10 kilometers deep in Kazakhstan, uh, but they'd been caught well, well into Kazakhstan and several times. And they did the same thing with Kyrgyzstan. And they did the same thing with Tajikistan so, and Turkmenistan. Um, so it, it wasn't wasn't overt it wasn't an actual open military action but in the meantime they did try to chip away um and, and take pieces here and there of of the border but uh like i said i think i think actually launching an attack on a, on one of the other countries even today i don't think uzbekistan would uh would consider doing something like that just because of no one's sure what the reaction would be um and from moscow certainly but even now from beijing which doesn't want any instability in central asia either in theory, they could do it, uh, but like I said, I think the reaction um, would be so negative that they would be sorry they did. Uzbekistan is one of only two double landlocked countries in the world, the other being Liechtenstein. 
Double landlocked means that not only are they landlocked, but all of the nations they surround are also landlocked nations, making any exporting of goods through ports incredibly difficult. So which countries does Uzbekistan rely on to get its goods to the markets to make any sort of money? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, you make a good point with the you know them being double landlocked. I also wondered why they had such a hostile policy toward their neighbors. You know, you'd figure when you were double landlocked, if you had to be friends with anybody, it would be with some of your neighbors. But uh, at, at different times, Uzbekistan has had bad relations with every one of its neighbors. Uh, you know, so I've, obviously the, the route through Kazakhstan is the one that that they would prefer because uh, the railway goes through there. Uh, you don't have to worry about ships going across the Caspian. Um, you know, Kyrgyzstan, as far as Kyrgyzstan, if they could, if they ever open up like the railroad uh, to China, which they've been talking about for years and years, um, there is a road that they're supposed to be able to use for trade. So that that's all very well and good. Uh, that would that would help that would help Uzbek Kyrgyz ties, although they're getting they're much better now than they were. Um, but but so that would be another one, too, because that would be the short route to China. Uh, and then, of course, that railway is going to go right into the Uzbekistan's term. The terminus is in Uzbekistan's section of the Fergana Valley for that one. So, um, you know, that Kyrgyzstan, yeah. If the political situation was different, Iran and Afghanistan would be wonderful countries to to run trade through. Um, but but it's not, and Uzbekistan has never put it made huge efforts in trying to push that through. Um, so I would have to say Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, they're on better terms with them now, but you got to remember for years, uh, post-2002, and really until the first president of Turkmenistan, Savar Murat Niyazov, died, um, they had they had horrible ties because in 2002 there was assassination an assassination attempt on Niyazov. And at least looking at the evidence the Turkmen side um, produced um, – and they're not a, an incredibly credible source, but it certainly did look like Uzbekistan had a part in that. So, um, you know, they've, they've just kind of mismanaged their ties. It, it, like I said, it, Kazakhstan for sure, because the railway goes to Russia. Uh, also, you can go to China. That that would be great. If they had the railway to Kyrgyzstan, that would be obviously better. If they got along better with Iran and, uh, and Turkmenistan was more of a reliable partner than a railway going to the Persian Gulf through Turkmenistan and Iran would be fantastic for them. And then, of course, Afghanistan, like I said, there's limitless potential for trade and trade routes in Afghanistan. But given the current political situation, the long-running political situation in Afghanistan, uh, it's just impossible to imagine that's going to happen anytime soon. Uzbekistan was once the entry point into Afghanistan for the Russians. But the relationship between Tashkent and Kabul has greatly improved since. With the Americans looking to pull out of Afghanistan, what role do you think Uzbekistan will play in the region? And what will their relationship be like with Kabul? Well, I mean, the relations between Tashkent and, and Kabul are, are, are all have been good since uh, the Taliban were chased from power. Um, you know, Uzbekistan would prefer um, a stable and, and moderate kind of government. Um, they were not friends with the Taliban, certainly in the 90s when the Taliban showed up at their border. Uh, and and Uz the Uzbek government at the time supported uh, Abdul Rashid Dostum, who's an ethnic Uzbek, but he's, he's an Afghan and, uh, and a military commander. Um, and, and they supported him and everybody knew they were, too, including the Taliban. And they complained about that. Um, so the, the Uzbek government is, is very happy with with the government that's in in Afghanistan right now. Ghani, um, you know, that he talks with 
Uzbek president Mirziyoyev several times a year about things, um, you know, over the phone, of course. Um, and, but you know, that said, um, the, the uh, I should mention that Uzbekistan is trying its own hand at peacemaking, and they they have ha- ha hosted a Taliban delegation uh, in Uzbekistan in Samarkand in 2019. Um, so uh, the, you know, they're they're trying to not only play peacemaker, but I suppose hedge their bets a little bit about what what comes with Afghanistan. Now, you know, the the relationship with the U.S. is curious because, of course, now there was the New York Times article last week that that said that uh, officials in the State Department, U.S. State Department, had said they were in talks with Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, and Tajikistan about possibly temporarily basing some U.S. troops there after they pull out of Afghanistan. Uh, And the article went on to say, well, this is, you know, for um, support, uh, air support and possibly running drones and things like that, which I suppose kind of makes sense. I mean, no one wants to see the U.S. pull out of Afghanistan and have Afghanistan end up like Iraq was, you know, after the U.S. pulled out. Um, so, you know, the um, the U.S.-Uzbek relationship has, like I said, it's always been, most of the time anyway, it was really good because President Karimov at first really wanted to be a friend of the United States just because he saw the United States as a uh, as a as a bulwark against Russian uh, influence in in Uzbekistan in particular, but Central Asia in general. Um, so, uh, U.S. you know, post Andijan, and and I won't get into that, but there was the, the the disproportionate use of force by Uzbek forces in 2005 when the U.S. had a base in Afghanistan. The U.S. complained about the the uh, the bloodshed, uh, the pointless bloodshed in, in Andijan and uh, Uzbekistan. Kicked them, told them to leave the base they were using in Af- in uh, Uzbekistan, and um, uh, since then uh, they've kind of—I wouldn't say they repaired ties, but but anyway, I mean uh, the Northern Distribution Network goes through. That's the rail and road, and and sometimes air route that connects Europe to um, Afghanistan and helps uh, bring non-lethal cargo uh, from from Europe into Afghanistan. Um, and, and also, that will also be the exit route, one imagines, for the remaining troops and equipment. Um, so the, clearly, there's going to be some level of cooperation in the coming months because the equipment that's being taken out of Afghanistan will, will probably be loaded on a rail and taken through Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan and then across the Caspian. Um, to Azerbaijan and, Georg- and Georgia and across the Black Sea, but uh, uh, you know, so so U.S. ties. I think it's it's an interesting time for this to happen for a lot of reasons, not just because of the Afghan the Afghan conflict is coming to an end. Um, you know, the U.S. being there helps helps gives a little extra assurance to the Central Asians that they're not being abandoned totally, uh, and that the U.S. does have a stake in this and and a stake in Central Asian security, which is of course what the Central Asian leaders are are most worried about. Um, but it also happens at a time when when it it's become obvious to the the governments in Central Asia that Russia is can't play the same role in Central Asia that it has for a long time. Financially, it just can't. Um, you know, I mean, everyone looked at what happened to, you know, Nagorno-Karabakh between Azerbaijan and Armenia. And Armenia is, is technically part of the Collective Security Treaty Organization, the Russian-led Collective Security Treaty Organization, and Armenia is not. Uh, now, Nagorno-Karabakh was disputed territory, but but still, I think a lot of the Central Asians looked at what happened there and saw that Turkey had an active hand in it, and Russia not really. Um, so they got to be questioning their some of their security 
guarantees that they received from Moscow over the years. Now, China has been a big factor in Central Asia because they have lots of money when no one had any money. And they've certain, they're still outspending everybody in Central Asia, but they finally figured out that, that they owe, a lot of them owe China more money than they can possibly ever hope to pay off. Uh, and so this is bad. And now they're getting very wary about dealing with the Chinese. Now, the U.S. and the West in general has had a limited influence post on Dijon 2005. But um, the Central Asians have got about rebalanced their relationships. Um, they're, they're too dependent on Russia for security guarantees, and they're too dependent on China for finances. Uh, and then they got to find somebody else um, uh, to help them out. Uh, and so I, this, I actually see this as a time where it's a, a very – a very good time to um, renew ties between the West and Central Asia, uh, just because they don't have the the strings attached that, that the Central Asians have with Russia and with China. I mean, it's um, it's a desirable partnership, certainly for the Central Asians. Will Uzbekistan look at housing either Russian, American, or Chinese troops, even on the unofficial basis, much like Tajikistan does at the moment? I, I don't see that happening in the the very near future uh, for a lot of reasons. Once again, no matter you know, Russian Uzbek ties are better. Um, certainly, since Krimov died and and Shavkat Mirziyoyev took over as president, but um, uh, the, you know the Uzbeks are real real wary about having a having a Russian base. I, you know, I always get that sense with everything they they want to they every statement they make about military cooperation with Russia. Um, you know, and they even passed a. a passed legislation years ago about where their troops could be based and who could be based on Uzbek territory. Um, so I, I don't see that Russia, I, I, you know, I should mention too that I talked about the Collective Security Treaty Organization that Russia leads with uh, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Armenia, and Belarus. Um, is that they, the Uzbekistan has been in that organization twice and, and left it, you know, uh, and and they're out right at the moment. But Russia really now that there's new leadership in, in Uzbekistan, Russia really wants them to join again. And they don't. And you get the impression that Uzbekistan doesn't want to join. Uh, they really don't want to be part of this this security grouping um, that Russia has. So I, I, I uh, you know, which, again, is kind of interesting when you consider the possibility that they would let the Americans have a temporary and very limited use of base, some bases in Uzbekistan, because it does kind of, it, in a way, it pushes the question off of Uzbekistan joining the Collective Security Treaty Organization, because no one's going to want them. It's going to be hard to finesse the language to let them in when there was an, a small American deployment in Uzbekistan somewhere. Um, so that, that actually would, would probably help them. The Chinese, um, no, you know, I mean, uh, you know, everyone made a big deal out of, out of the, the base that they, uh, opened up in Tajikistan. And I suppose it is a big deal, you know, but, but I mean, in fact, it is right by the Chinese border way up in the remote mountains, you know, and, and also by the Afghan border, which is really what they want to do. I mean, they're, they essentially, that's their, their barricade, um, outside their border, uh, to make sure that no none of the problems from Afghanistan come sneaking up through these uh, high mountains and and come into China through the back door, um, you know, I, it was one. I don't think Uzbekistan would let China base troops there. But two, um, I, I can't imagine China basing troops. They, they would have to be well inside Central Asia at that point, right? And um, China's China's been real careful not to get troops out where they get could get into combat, you know, certainly at least in Central Asia, even in, in you know, in Tajikistan, like I said, they're way, way up in the mountains. But what the, what the, what Beijing does not want is, is a global Islamic uh, movement against them. 
right? And this is what you get when you're the U.S. and you're in Af- Iraq and, and Afghanistan. All of a sudden, you you there's this network of of uh, uh, radicals or or whatever, uh, but but they decide that. Um, this is an attack on Islam and it's an attack on Muslims, you know, and Russia had the same problem with Chechnya. Um, now, the Chinese certainly studied that. They don't want that. Basing troops in Uzbekistan uh, w- would just cause so many problems for them. Um, you know, they're having they're having a big problem with Xinjiang and rightfully so. I mean, it's, it's horrible what's going on there. Well, staying on China here, how reliant is Uzbekistan on China economically at the moment? Well, I mean, they're all, like I said, they're, they're all in debt. Uh, you know, Kazakhstan having the the biggest economy, it's not such a problem for them. Um, but but the others, it's it, you know, including Uzbekistan, although to a lesser degree than Kyrgyzstan, Turkmenistan, or Tajikistan, that's for sure. Uh, but they they all are into China. One of the one of the problems that they're going to have with China, and and one of the advantages that China really has is is they started out by by building these huge projects, right? Um, you know, I, I I've talked before about China and Central Asia. And I mentioned that before there was Belt and Road, there was Central Asia. And the Chinese, you know, they signed their first contract for an oil pipeline in Kazakhstan at the toward the very end of the 1990s. They got the big gas pipelines coming from Turkmenistan. Um, they signed all kinds of deals to, to build new railroads, uh, new road and repave roads uh, or, and or build new ones. Um, uh, you know, huge, huge project, multi-billion dollar projects in Central Asia starting, you know, about 2005, 2006, and then going, you know, even, like I said, even before Belt and Road. Um, some of that was was the CARIC program that the Asian Development Bank runs. It's true. So it's hard to, to pull the two apart in some places. But anyway, China built this elaborate uh, infrastructure um, transportation infrastructure network in Central Asia, which all leads to China. Right, so the, so all the roads and all the railroads and everything like that, and all the pipelines uh, bring something, some raw material from Central Asia to China, uh, and so you're connected. If you're Kazakhstan and you, and you don't want to sell China oil, then your oil pipeline is worthless. If you're Turkmenistan and you decide you don't want to sell gas to China, the gas pipelines are worthless. Um, you know, so uh, so they're already hooked, so to say. I mean, they're, 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 it's a, it's a bond that they're not going to be able to break now. Again, given the global financial situation, um, you know, Russia years ago, uh, when the price of oil was real high, um, they, they would have, you know, they did spend a lot of money in Central Asia, but they haven't been able to do that, you know, certainly for the last five or six years, you know, and then they had a problem in 2008, which is really about the time China spend, started spending a lot of money uh, in Central Asia. So the Chinese now are at, this, in the, at the point where um, they have all the big projects they want built, pretty much, uh, all the things they need to bring uh, gas, oil, uh, raw minerals, which include uranium, uh, you know, things like that out of Central Asia to China are already in place. And, and every now and then they'll, they'll spend, uh, make a, give one of the countries a loan for two, $300 million to build a new power station or something like that. And that, that kind of money is peanuts for China, but it's, it, you know, it's, it's huge money for Central Asia. So they already got them hooked. They're in debt. And the only country that's willing to spend money on some of these big, you know, what, what by Central Asian standards are big infrastructure projects or communications projects or something like that is China, uh, you know. And so um, they're, they're essentially, um, like I said, just tied to China so many ways now 
uh, that it would be it, it's almost unimaginable to think that one of the countries could ever say we're breaking ties with you. I mean, one, they would owe them a lot of money, but two, they're just they're trade dependent upon China for so many things now. Um, you know that it would be China has has the advantage and will have for a long time. And like I said, as long as they're willing to spend two or three hundred million every year on each country, um, that's more that's more than enough reason for the governments of the region to stay friends with Beijing. In exchange for this money and investment from China, do you think China may enforce all of these Central Asian countries to not allow U.S. refueling on their territory or not allow U.S. investment into the country? You know, will China be happy with U.S. bases in Central Asia? It doesn't. It doesn't put you um, the Central Asians and China at odds that there would be a U.S. base, or or the U.S. and China at odds with, uh, that there would be U.S. base or bases in Central Asia. China also does not want. Afghanistan's instability to spill over into Central Asia. Right? We were just talking. They've invested a lot of money in Central Asia. There's things, uh, supplies, uh, commodities um, that that China has uh, invested in in Central Asia and expects that it will get its re- get return uh, for decades to come. So they don't want problems in Central Asia of any kind at all. They want everything to stay exactly like it is, actually, uh, as much as possible. So if, if the U.S. The agreement with Central Asia would be, you know, that we're basically going to, we're focused on Afghanistan, we need to use your territory, you know, small bases in your territory because you neighbor the country, and we're trying to make sure uh, that militant groups, some of which include citizens from Central Asian countries, uh, aren't, you know, don't take power in in various districts or possibly provinces or something that you know uh make sure that the taliban can't is in no shape in the north even if they're there all over the place they couldn't possibly mass but you know america's presence there is kind of a is is just an additional guarantee um that that again afghanistan's problems won't spill over the border uh and it's you know if you're china you're not the one spending money on it either so, uh, you know, it's win-win. It preserves the status quo in Central Asia, and it's free. What do you think the future holds in store for Uzbekistan? I expect in 10 years there'll be, if nothing horrible happens, like, uh, you know, a major step back and, and a return to the more repressive days of the government of, you know, 15 and 20 years ago. Um, and they can, you know, if they keep their image clean, a lot of a lot of international organizations are, are ready to go back to Uzbekistan, and some have already started started going back. Um, World Bank, uh, you know, one, being one. Um, so it's Uzbekistan should be much better off and then probably a little bit less dependent on China and uh, more it, it, less dependent on Russia, but, but even less on Russia than they are on China. When you find your house is rotting timbers, you really only have two options. Destroy the house and start again leaving all the occupants of the house homeless until things are back up and running. Or remove and replace each rotting timber with a brand new one, one at a time. Slow progress is made, and the rot is slowly removed. And with this option, you still have a house to live in, even if it's not complete. This is the process Tashkent is undertaking. First removing the rotten timber that is the Soviet-style dictatorship, trying to reform the cotton slavery, improving relations with its neighbours, and trying to diversify its economy. And so far, good progress is being made. Much of the rot is gone, but there's still a long way to go. 
There is still a form of slavery in the country. There is still no real democracy. Moscow oligarchs still control many of the major industries in Uzbekistan. And on top of that, there is still a giant pit of smallpox and anthrax contaminating half of the country. Progress is progress, though. The timbers are slowly being replaced, and the roof hasn't fallen down yet. How long will it take Tashkent to get these major timbers out is an open question. But after all, we're only at the half point of our journey, what Uzbekistan has always been famous for. Thank you so much to everybody who tuned in this month. This month, May, was our biggest month yet, and the show is already taking huge leaps and bounds forward every week. Just this week, we expanded the team and brought on even more staff so we can bring you more content on the conflicts around the world. And if you want to follow the show and stay up to date with all of these new articles and analysis, you can follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Reddit, Twitter, Discord, Instagram, and Swell on the handle at the Redline Pod. Or you can follow me on Mike Hilliard Oz, Oz is in Australia. Otherwise, visit our website, which is www.theredlinepodcast.com. This show would not be possible without the support of our amazing Patreons, who donate a small amount of money each week to help us keep this show going. Our Patreons get to join on game nights, live Q&As, and even get extra materials from the show. The Patreons' donations all 100% go back into the program, helping us pay for staff, program, hosting, websites, and lawyers that are essential for running a show like this. I cannot thank our current Patreons nearly enough for their support. And if you feel like you can spare a couple of dollars a week, we here at the show would greatly appreciate it. We'll be doing our next Q&A as well as our geopolitics pub quiz in a couple of weeks. So if you're a Patreon, keep an eye on your inboxes for dates and times. As usual, here are our three recommended reads for this week if you want to take your study into Uzbekistan even further. First will be The Silk Road by Peter Frankopan, a detailed look at the ancient history of the Silk Road and how it shaped Central Asia today. The second would be Dictators Without Borders by a friend of the show Alexander Cooley about how the oligarchic system and corruption plays out in Central Asia. And the third would be Central Asia, a history from imperial conquests to the present by Abdi Khalid for an overall look at the complexity that is the Central Asian region. I want to give a big thanks to all of our guests this week, Joanna Lewis, Nikita Makarenko, Chris Yabzandrisens, and Bruce Panier for joining us this week. All of you were absolutely fantastic, and we look forward to having you back on the show soon. I also want to thank all of my staff, Owen Swift, the producer, Perry Grace and Daniela Zavella, the new research assistants, Mark Spencer, our second voiceover artist, Joe Hawthorne, our audio cleaner, Marissa Rafter, our videographer, and Nick Munch, our field correspondent. Without you guys, this show would not be possible at all. So I want to say thank you for all of your hard work. The last thanks goes out to you for tuning into the show. Watching this show get bigger and bigger has been absolutely mind-boggling. But what makes it even better is watching this community build up around our Twitter and our Discord and our pub quizzes and having you guys reach out to me just to ask questions and get in contact with me as well as give me insider information on what's going on around the world. No matter how many streams the show gets in a month, that's the thing that consistently puts a smile on my face. And I thank you a lot for it. The show will be back in another fortnight with another international episode. But until then, thank you and good night.
The views and opinions expressed in this episode are solely those of Michael, our guests, and the Redline podcast. They do not represent any government or organization and are solely our own. For more information, please visit theredlinepodcast.com.